Hello, and welcome to Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study, episode 12, June 12th, June, excuse me, watch my numbers there, June 21st, 2020. I am Linda Hoffman Kimball, conducting today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Other board members, Michael Austin, Rebecca Deschweinitz, and Chris Kimball are participating today in the background, providing technological assistance and goodwill, and they may pop up from time to time. We acknowledge that today is Father's Day. Welcome to all the fathers in attendance. We also celebrate the supportive and good fathers the rest of us have known and loved in our lives. First, allow me a few minutes of dialogue business. Our entire 50 year plus run of dialogue, scholarship, personal essays, poetry, art, sermons, and more, including our most recent issue, are all available for free, for free, online at dialoguejournal.com. There you can find links to other features, including our podcasts and our previous Gospel Sunday study sessions. And of course, there's a donate link, since uh, access to free content also means dialogue depends on contributions. So thank you for that. A few notes regarding today's program. We are using our webinar format, which does not allow you to speak or to see others, but does allow a large number of participants we have, and also allows you to chat and pose questions, which should probably be on the right-hand side of your screen. We ask, as always, that you do whatever comments and questions uh, you include, that you do that respectfully and in keeping with our speaker's message. If there's time for discussion, we will pull comments and questions from the chat. So thank you for adding that component. We are recording this session and running a live stream on Facebook. We have in the past experienced uh, some unexplained dropouts from Facebook. Uh, if that happens, we'll try to restart as quickly as possible and we ask for your patience with that little quirk. We are overjoyed to have Laurel Thatcher Ulrich today as our featured presenter. She will address chapters 13 to 16 of Alma in her lesson, which she has titled, How Can We Witness This Awful Scene? I'm getting some feedback, so I hope one of our techno, techno people will help me here. Okay. Okay, before I introduce Laurel, I need to make our standard disclaimer. We asked Laurel to teach today based on her own talents, her dedication, and her voice. We did not ask her to represent dialogue or to be a spokeswoman for us. We certainly do not expect her to be a spokesperson for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. What Laurel makes of the scriptures is her voice. I am honored to introduce our guest today. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich grew up among the potato farms and sagebrush of Eastern Idaho in Sugar City. Educated at the University of Utah, Simmons College in Massachusetts and the University of New Hampshire while rearing five children, Laurel received the 1991 Pulitzer Prize in History and the Bancroft Prize for her work on A Midwife's Tale, The Life of... Martha Ballard, based on her diary, 1785 to 1812. This book became a landmark piece in women's labor history. In 1992, the MacArthur Foundation chose Laurel as a MacArthur Fellow 
1995, she became the center of uh, the director. Hmm. She became a professor of early American history and director of the Center of Studies in American History at Harvard University. As of 2018, Laurel now is an emeritus Harvard professor and lives near Philadelphia. Before Laurel shares her thoughts on the Alma chapters, we will enjoy a special musical presentation entitled Wait on the Lord by Harriet Petherick Bush Bushman. First, a little background on the musical number. With the devastation and fear caused by COVID-19, Harriet Petherick Bushman, a pianist and composer based in Kuwait, responded to the call of the Center for Latter-day Saint Art in New York City to create a piece of work expressing art in uncertain times. In troubled biblical history, psalms were written and sung, and the beauty of their words was inspiration in the composition of this song, Wait on the Lord. Harriet Petherick Bushman, a graduate of the Royal Academy of Music in London, has performed widely as a soloist, a chamber musician, and she has written for film, television, and the stage. Following the musical number, we will have an opening prayer by Heather Sendall. Heather is a hoot. Heather is a writer and media specialist at the Utah Women in Leadership Project at Utah Valley University. She received a BA in Humanities and an MA in English from BYU. Her passion is women's stories. In pursuit of this, she has worked for Exponent 2 for 23 years as a contributor, blogger, editor, retreat presenter, and president. Heather has traveled to Botswana and South Africa to interview and collect the stories of the Sister Saints with the Mormon Women Oral History Project. She lives in Provo. Following Heather's prayer, we will turn the time to Laurel.
Our dear Heavenly Father, as we come together as a far-flung community bound by our desire to seek truth, today we are grateful to listen to our sister Laurel, a woman of wisdom and faith. Bless us to be teachable and to have open hearts and minds. We ask a special blessing during these times of strife and pandemic. Bless us to learn and to grow and to find healing for the wounded souls and bodies. And finally, we ask us, we ask thee to bless us to be thy hands and to promote goodness. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you first to the Board of Dialogue for inviting me to do this. I think it's always a great gift to be asked to think about the scriptures um, in a thoughtful way. And it's been a very rich experience for me over the past several weeks because I've had a fair amount of time to contemplate what on earth I could say. I don't consider myself an expert on the Book of Mormon, but I've had a very um, moving experience contemplating my assigned text, which is the Book of Alma, chapters 13 to 16. And I would like to start by giving a kind of a brief overview of how this sits in the Book of Alma and why it's important. It, those of you that have been kind of following along the prescribed curriculum will recognize that Alma and his new companion, Amulek, are um, trying to convert the very wicked people of Ammonihah, a particularly vicious uh, place, as it turns out. And the chapters um, in this segment, uh, I just kind of rattle them forth to kind of remind you, those of you who are interested where we are in the broader story, in chapter 13, we, we get a kind of reinforcement of the importance of what Alma and Amulek are doing in a chapter that tells us that from the foundation of the world, God chose priests, high priests, men who were very good, and that these men were foreordained to preach the gospel of salvation. In chapter 14, we discover what a difficult task that is. And this is the chapter I'm gonna focus on in my talk, but just know it um, really accounts for my title, How Can We Look at These Awful Things? And I, I had that lament myself as I dived into this story. And then things begin to look up in chapter 15. They escape the wicked city. They begin to make progress. Um, they heal one of their former antagonists. Uh, they start to reestablish a church. And then the punchline comes in chapter 16. 
And I'm really indebted to Grant um, Hardy's wonderful book on understanding the Book of Mormon for an understanding of the way in which this story about Alma and Amulek fits into what he considers to be um, the, the very essence of Mormon's abridgment of the Nephite records. And he tells us, um, and these are things that are very interesting to me as a historian, um, someone who's very interested in texts and in unpacking words and books and the structure of reading. Um, he uses an interesting metaphor. He says that the backbone of Mormon's treatment of <clears throat> these, these abridgment uh, of these plates is chronology. Chronology is the backbone of history. I mean, that's why historians like dates and nobody likes historians. But for historians, knowing what comes first, what comes second, what comes third, really, really important. So Mormon cares about chronology. But Mormon also carries about prophecy. And prophecy, Hardy says, are the ligaments that hold that backbone together in the book of Alma. Now, he also tells us, and I think this is really important and I want to lay this out here, looking more broadly to the earlier chapters of the mission to um, Ammoniah, Alma and Amulek have prophesied the absolute destruction of that city unless the people repent. And the reason they get into so much trouble in chapter 14 is that they refuse to recant that prophecy. And they triumph in chapter 16 <laughs> because the Lamanites come in and not only totally destroy the city, but kill every person in it. The bodies are piled so high and covered so lightly with earth that the scripture tells us there's such a great stink that it is years before anyone attempts to come back and reclaim that space. Now this is one of those terrible, depressing stories that we're greeted with over and over again in the Book of Mormon and why people like me that sort of like uh, stories about ordinary people doing ordinary things, I kind of recoil. And uh, it's, an, it's an awful story, it really is. But what I found as I went back and tried to look more closely at this story, in the scriptures where it's 
most horrified, which to my view is in chapter 14, we get what I would call the beating heart of the gospel. And it comes in, I don't know where it comes from. Um, you can decide that. But I, I found it very, very touching. And so um, what I would like to do now is just uh, read with you um, what I consider the crucial passage in, in that chapter. And I think Michael is going to put up the text so that you all can follow along. How do I see that text, Michael? Because <laughs> I don't have it. There it is. There it is. So what we need to know here before we begin is that um, two things that I think are pretty interesting. That is the persecution of the two missionaries in uh, this wicked city was done according to the law and the chief persecutors were judges and lawyers. Kind of interesting. And there are prisons in this town and, and people who torture other people and who carry out the draconian rules that this city has made. And so as we pick the scripture up here, we learn that some men actually, um, actually um, believed Alma, but they were thrown out of the city. They were stoned and they were thrown out of the city. Okay, let's read this together. Um, this is the beating heart of this segment of the Book of Mormon, in my humble opinion. So they, meaning um, the officials, brought the wives and children of the men who had been stoned and thrown out of the city. They brought their wives and children together. And whosoever believed or had been taught to believe in the word of God, they caused that they should be cast into the fire. And they also brought forth their records, which contained the holy scriptures, and cast them into the fire also, that they might be burned and destroyed by fire. And when Amulek saw the pains of the women and children who were consuming in the fire, he was pained. And he said unto Alma, how can we witness this awful scene? Therefore, let us stretch forth our hands and exercise the power of God which is in us and save them from the flames. Now, I have to say that I resonated immediately with that question. Um, as I learned over the past few weeks, the suffering of people from the coronavirus and 
a lot of members in my ward who are healthcare workers, doctors, physician's assistants, home health aides, people who work in hospitals. And um, I wanted to say, how can I witness this awful scene? What can I do? And that was the most burning question to the point where I even got my sewing machine out, which I haven't used for a very long time. Um, and I started being prodded by a bit by my sister in Utah and my daughter in California, I, I began to, and, and Linda sent me a fabulous face mask, and so I began trying to make face masks. And it wasn't terribly satisfying. I, I wasn't sure who wanted them. I wasn't confident in my sewing, but I tried to do that just because it was so demoralizing. Um, and, and it felt good to want to help. It felt terrible not to feel that I had the ability to do anything really significant to help. And I think Amulek felt that way. And maybe, maybe I'll give Emma a little credit and say he may have felt that way too. So if we go to the next uh, scripture, Michael. But Alma said unto him, the spirit constraineth me that I must not stretch forth mine hand. For behold, the Lord receiveth them up unto himself in glory. And he doth suffer, he meaning the Lord, he doth suffer that they may do this thing, or that the people may do this thing unto them, according to the hardness of their hearts, that the judgments which he shall exercise upon them in his wrath may be just. And the blood of the innocent shall stand as a witness against them, yea, and cry mightily against them at the last day. Now, I'll come back to that in a minute. But Amulek then sort of shifted his attention from what the suffering that he didn't want to watch to his own situation. Because he and Alma were both bound and under the control of the same people who were executing the women and children. And he said to Alma, behold, perhaps they will burn us also. And Alma said, be it according to the will of the Lord, but behold, our work is not finished. Therefore, they burn us not. That's when I screamed. <laughs> I, I didn't like Alma's 
explanation at all. <laughs> um, it seems to me that it's one thing to say that God is going to receive in glory those who suffer because of their faith in him and their faith in redemption. But I think it's quite another thing to say that God allowed their bodies to be burned so that he, God, could justly punish their persecutors. I hope no one will try to explain to me why that makes sense. Because to me, it doesn't. And I found Alma's assurance that he and Amulek would not be burned even more appalling. Our work is not yet finished. That is, God is going to protect us because we're important. Remember? Remember chapter 13? They are the high priests. They are the persons chose from the foundation of the world to preach redemption. So they matter at a really important work. And their work is not yet done because all of the people have not yet heard the gospel. So to me, that comment reinforced the importance of his work. But what did it say about the undone work of the people who were burned in Ammonahiah or Auschwitz or during the Peacock Massacre of 1639 in Massachusetts or in the horrible burning of streets and people in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, or in any of the places of the world where bombs or improvised devices of various kinds and fires and conflagrations are destroying people. So this to me was not satisfying and I, I really um, loved Greg Prince's readings from Job because I, I don't like these explanations that try to make God a monster. And I think we do multiply words without knowledge. On the other hand, I think we probably do some of this ourselves as we try to comfort people. You know, it was meant to be. It was God's will. Um, and I worry about our doing that too easily. I believe that <clears throat> the official um, lessons on these uh, four chapters know that there's something wrong, something slightly disturbing in these chapters. Um, the manual, Come Follow Me, I think, 
tried to deal in some way with uh, sexism implied um, in the manual, but they sort of got the wrong chapter. And they went to chapter 13 and um, they quoted from Spencer W. Kimball. And, and maybe the implication was that the work of the women who were burned in the fire had also been done. I don't know, they didn't mention those verses. They just addressed the question of foreordination by quoting Spencer W. Kimball, uh, who suggested that while faithful men were foreordained to the priesthood, faithful women might also have been given certain assignments, uh, those unnamed assignments, of course, that we all have as women. I think the Book of Mormon videos also, um, I, I took the opportunity to, to look at those that related to these chapters, and they really tried to make Alma seem like a sensitive guy, um, even though his words seem extremely insensitive as, as abridged and um, printed in these chapters of the Book of Mormon. Um, he sympathized with women, but in the process of doing it, they, um, they really created an amazing kind of um, visual haze around the women and children. I, thank goodness I wouldn't have wanted to watch the burning of bodies. But um, they further, I think, reduced their visibility and their importance. And they didn't face the really important issues that are raised by this juxtaposition of the story of the women who were destroyed with the story of the high priest who was rescued when he couldn't take it anymore. He called on God, God destroyed the prison and all the other people in it, interestingly enough. And then he went on into the next chapter to preach the gospel. And it makes me wonder if the assignment given to God's daughters in the pre-existence was presumed to be to suffer. That's a horrible thought. So I want to go next to the last little snippet of scripture. If you can put that up, Michael. Oops, there it is. Yeah. Um, it just kind of condensed it a bit. This is the end of the story. Um, but I wanted to look at it more closely because it raises what I think is the even larger story that I, I want us to think about here. Now it came to pass that the bodies of those who had been cast 
fire were consumed. And also the records which were cast in with them. And also the records which were cast in with them. And so that takes me to want to think a bit more about some of my own experiences um, over the last few weeks as I've thought about these scriptures. I, I didn't initially really focus on the fact that the, the evil in this execution was not just about people's bodies, but about words, about records. And if there's any theme anywhere that we emphasize in our studies of the Book of Mormon, it's the importance of record keeping and record keeping members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are known everywhere for records, meticulous, meticulous record keeping. And we know who the writers are in the Book of Mormon and the abridgers and the translators. The great absence in the Book of Mormon are women. Children and Lamanites except as implements of fear and the emblems of evil until we get, you know, Abish, the story of Abish. We, even in these chapters, we learn the Lamanites, Alma says, are better than you are because you're so wicked. But the Lamanites are the model of wickedness throughout the book, even though the book as really sophisticated readers of the Book of Mormon understand pretty much destroys the binary Lamanite-Nephite um, division. But in, in the records, the named characters are males, white males. And is that a problem? Well, many years ago, I think Carolyn Pearson wrote a, a really terrific essay um, saying a good feminism has saved the Nephites. In other words, is um, sexism um, the cause of the destruction? of the Nephite civilization. Essentially, that is what she's saying. And she's really arguing that that um, systemic sexism is modeled in the almost total absence of women. I think three named women, other than figures from um, the Bible. And People responded to that and continue to respond to that in really, really interesting and provocative ways, um, as Fiona Gibbons did um, when she gave one of these lessons 
um, some time ago through symbolism, through uncovering the symbolism that um, alludes to uh, a mother in heaven, perhaps, as Fiona thought, or the symbolism of female suffering as being a kind of um, emblem for the wickedness in the society um, by alluding to many, many allusions to wives, some who grew strong in childbearing and in traveling and suckling in the wilderness, various, various interesting responses. And I, I don't want to dismiss any of those things. Um, but for me, they don't work. And this is why don't work. They transform women into icons, into symbols and emblems of abstractions. They do not honor them as fully formed human beings capable of acting in the world. And I say this with some authority because uh, for, for many years and most recently in the last um, two or three years, I've been looking very hard at the iconography in um, American political culture and in particular in the women's suffrage movement. And it's pretty striking. We're, we're, we're now worried about monuments, right? We're taking monuments down. And even this morning, there was an op-ed, or I, I can't remember if it was an op-ed or a news story. It's hard to tell these days. In the Washington Post, and it was talking about an uproar over a statue of Lincoln, um, who is it's ostensibly a celebration of um, Emancipation Proclamation, but it pictures Lincoln as this extremely powerful figure and an unclothed slave kneeling at his feet and underplaying as those who object to this statue, the, the racist elements in Lincoln's life, but particularly emphasizing the lack of agency, the lack of agency. Long before there was an Emancipation Proclamation, enslaved persons in the Americans had been emancipating themselves. Not very many because of the horrendous circumstances in which they existed. But powerful force in the American Revolution and definitely in the Civil War is slaves who ran away. And we recently have struggled um, as lots of historians worked on finally getting some kind of public consensus on getting the image of Harriet Tubman onto the $20 bill in place of Andrew Jackson. And of course that fell apart because 
the current Secretary of the Treasury didn't believe um, there was energy to do that task. Um, so icons, so anyway, in the Washington Post this morning, the well-intentioned writer was saying there are more healing images in Washington that show uh, the valiance of African-Americans. And, um, and then better images of women, such as the peace monument, which is filled with images of women mourning the dying soldiers. And those images are not women at all. They are representations of virtues, grief, peace, whatever. Um, so for an enslaved person, kneeling is an emblem of invisibility and oppression. For women, particularly white women, a pedestal became, over the course of the 19th century, an emblem of oppression. So I'm wary about pedestals. And I think reconciliation Actually, as I thought through these chapters and as I began to think about the importance of stories and I read and looked at the incredible images in the, that were displayed in the song this morning, images that came from the issue of dialogue that was created in collaboration with Exponent 2, every one of those images said something to me about memory as a focus of healing, about expression, artistic, literary, fictional, historical, analytical, as a means of validating a person's humanity. One of the little projects that I have been involved in since we moved to Philadelphia, thanks to lots of support uh, from others, is trying to encourage members of our ward um, once a month to get together and tell their stories. On the second uh, Saturday of June, we persuaded uh, really important leaders in our ward in Philadelphia, Melody and George Chappelle, to come and talk to us about systemic racism as it exists in the world um, and as if they have experienced it in their own lives. Um, George, um, with his family, joined the church in 1978, just after the 
proclamation on the priesthood. He was the first African-American in the Philadelphia area to serve a mission, and he has been a pillar of our community here ever since, as have other members of his family and the very high proportion of members in our ward who are not descended from the pioneers. Um, have come as immigrants, have lived all their lives in Philadelphia. We have an um, inadequate parlance. We have a very diverse ward. Um, and Melody, um, George's wife, who's a gifted teacher and has worked to orient first-generation students as they enter college to how to deal with discrimination. Um, she joined the church in Alabama, <laughs> amazingly. Um, and so her orientation to the church and her amazing skills in navigating systemic racism developed together. But one of the things I've discovered as I've gotten to know some of my sisters in the ward, particularly the older women who are closer to my age, and we seem to have more to talk about and complain about uh, together. Um, as I've asked them about their lives, and I, I like to learn people's stories, there's often a break um, when they will say to me, uh, I can't talk about it. It's too painful. And as I have learned some of the details, about <clears throat> what it might mean. To be raped at the age of 14 and be forced to drop out of school or about what it might mean to have three members of your family murdered. or a beloved son imprisoned. Um, I thought more about Amulek's question, might we too be burned? And although I'm absolutely aware that I am in the high vulnerable group, for the dying of the virus. I know I am not in the demographic that loses my children to systemic racism. And I realize 
the importance of looking at things that we don't want to see. And I'm grateful for gifted and prophetic figures who can help us do that. And one of them, Michael, is Toni Morrison, whose great novel, Beloved, is a story about stories that cannot be told. It's literally, and I won't take the time to go into detail, but it's literally um, inspired by the story of a woman who was captured when the slave catchers came after her when she escaped, killed her two-year-old in her arms. And to keep her from going back to the nightmare from which she thought they had admired. And you can read about Margaret Garner, there are wonderful sources about her life. But Toni Morrison took that story and rather than focusing on slavery, she centered it on the aftermath. And what would happen if that woman had survived and moved into the reconstruction period with that wound. She couldn't be tried for murder because she wasn't a person. The abolitionists tried to get Margaret Garner tried for murder and that would have been a great achievement because then they would have to have acknowledged her personhood. But instead she was convicted of destroying her master's property and shipped off to Louisiana. Well, Toni Morrison imagines this woman surviving and raising other children, but never being able to overcome the memory of the lost child. And that um, lost child supposedly returns as a kind of ghost in this story, but she's really the ghost of pain that can't be remembered and accounted for. And so I want to just read this last passage as the closing, and perhaps as a reminder to us of what we haven't remembered, haven't acknowledged, and need to come to terms with. Everybody knew what she was called, but nobody anywhere knew her name. Disremembered and unaccounted for, she cannot be lost because no one is looking for her. They forgot her like a bad dream. After they made up their tales, shaped and decorated them, those that saw her that day on the porch quickly and deliberately forgot her. It took longer for those who had spoken to her, lived with her, fallen in love with her to forget until they realized they couldn't remember or repeat a single thing she said and began to believe that other than what they themselves were thinking, she hadn't said anything at all. So in the end, they forgot her too remembering 
seemed unwise. It was not a story to pass on. May we pass on our stories in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much, Laurel. Um, I'm <laughs> thank you for bringing in Toni Morrison and um, these really um, uh, important connections to our particular historical moment um, and the challenges that we're facing um, and that we're asked to witness. Um, as I've been looking at the comments on chat, uh, lots of folks are talking about uh, agency and different notions of justice. And I'm wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about, um, we tend to, and we see in these scriptures, um, those who are supposed to be our heroes really focusing on more of a traditional punitive um, type of justice. Um, but there are other ways of thinking about justice. Uh, and um, we're reminded of Richard Vohr's ideas about restorative justice and about God's work being about healing and unity, not carrying out punishment to balance the scales, which is what we kind of see uh, Alma and Amulek um, suggesting okay. needs to happen here. And, and they're using that to absolve them of responsibility and to be able to return the focus on themselves. Um, and I think that we often have that tendency. Um, we're all really appreciating your, your question about um, kind of how can I witness, what can I do, um, how can I keep from being um, uh, like these less than perfect um, Book of Mormon heroes who are then uh, turning the focus back on themselves um, which was so striking for me to think about um, that they don't want to watch it. So they're looking at it, uh, looking and focusing on their own situation. Um, what are some of the things that, that we can do maybe to, um, to not get caught in that, in that trap? Um, what can we do to, to bring out the stories and the pain and the suffering and, um, and center um, our efforts on a restorative justice rather than this kind of punitive justice? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I know what we <laughs> should do. Um, and I think um, actually the Book of Mormon, whenever things go well in the Book of Mormon, it's because everybody's equal, right? I think we need to bring that out in our own society. I think systemic inequality, the virus has, has a, uh, it's not, it's about, fundamentally about race, um, but it's about inequality more general and more broadly. And I, you know, it's a little startling to find out you're not an essential worker, right? <laughs> Those of us who can work at home, <laughs> or maybe we are, we're privileged. We're so immensely privileged. I, it's been driving me crazy. And maybe it's because I'm retired and I feel useless. It's one of the things that happens to people who are retired. 
I, I didn't feel quite as useless when I was uh, teaching actively every day because I thought I might help my students to do better. But I live in a suburb um, in a big house. It's not hard to stay home. I have the beautiful yard. I have air conditioning, <laughs> you know? And this suburb for a um, hundred years has uh, restricted people live here. Right now we're surrounded by people who were formerly not allowed in this town. Every variety of Jew, we have a Muslim neighbor. There are African-Americans, but you can't afford it, right? So it's about income inequality and it's about residential segregation and it's about not wanting to overburden the schools and the tax burden by spending more on education it's not about wanting people in apartments for heaven's sakes build apartments in this town so i think um, people are right who say so many of these issues are local and getting involved in local politics is, I think, one of my resolutions. I'm not quite sure how to do it. Um, my daughter is leading the way on that here, who lives not far from me. But I think we have to act. And I think the easy answer that these are the last days, God is going to sort all things out, which I don't think... I think Mormons really do want to help. I think we're still a helping community coming out of our communitarian past, but I feel that communitarian past fading around me. I feel it fading around me. And I'm not sure why, but um, yeah, those are all good points, Rebecca. <laughs> I don't have answers. But yeah, um, I, I think, um, you know, maybe we're caught up in this idea that, that, that we've been chosen, right? And, and oh, we've been chosen. Absolutely. Yeah. We really are yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a comment about um, reminding us that God's restorative justice can only occur through and, and in us in this life. Um, and um, and that we're called as disciples of Christ um, to forward the work that we can do rather than um, to turn away. Uh, another comment that just came through um, says, it's helpful to remember at this point in the Book of Mormon that we're still in Old Testament times. Um, the Savior hasn't come yet. Um, and his example of uh, kind of a counterpoint to what justice and mercy look like as opposed to um, kind of the law in a more punitive view. Um, well, but of course, problem, when the, Yeah, the okay. problem with that analysis is of the focus. I, I followed Grant Hardy on this, yeah. but the abridger yeah. is in, <laughs> not in the Old Testament times. Okay. Yeah, the, the abridger, and then if the book is meant for our times, that's certainly... <laughs> and uh, we're not either. Right. We're not either. Yeah. Right. So, um, so maybe we can think a little bit more about, um, you know, what is Christ, you know, how does, 
kind of Christ message and um, atonement shift maybe, um, or how might it shift how Alma and his friends approach this uh, horrifying episode? Um, and then what can we, what can we maybe take from that? Um, they preached repentance. And so I think it's for all of us to repent, right? Um, and, um, and we really can't, I mean, we have, these are sketchy stories. <laughs> I can't judge Alma, but I can judge the text. And I can judge what we as a community do with the text. Yeah, I love that. And, uh, and I love the idea that the evil is, um, is about what's happening to people's bodies, but also about records. Yes. Uh, and, um, and I see that happening today, too, as we're trying to confront uh, issues of, of racial justice um, in our time. Uh, and there's a reluctance to look both at people's bodies and what's happening to bodies, as well as at the records, the history, the past that, is, that has brought us um, to this moment and, um, and contributed to the long history of, of racial injustice. So how do we, um, how do we kind of get over that and maybe convince others to get over that? <laughs> I think that's a big question for our time. Well, I think we have some fabulous examples around us um, in the young people who are uh, starting to I mean, it's, it's like being in the 60s again, which is very depressing at some levels, 60s and 70s, and also very encouraging at other levels. And what I see is that it's men and women, people of many ethnicities and races joining, but, but primarily younger people joining together and saying enough is enough. And I, I think um, we see this, I, I'm, I'm very encouraged because I don't see a lot of this very hard, uh, we are chosen mentality among the young, younger people. In fact, I think they're yearning and and the, the sexism is you know dialogue board you guys all work together people take terms leading i mean it's not a hierarchical arrangement and and that's lovely Linda, did you want to jump in um just i was very grateful to have you rebecca to uh, consolidate and um, look through the, the comments and bring some to for further discussion. Um, Chris provided me with some good quotes too, but I think mostly they've been covered by the ones that you did. Um, he did quote something from Laurel just now, the importance of looking at things we do not want to see. Uh, that's 
should be bold typed in all of our uh, minds and imagination. Um, I'm also, I turned my screen back on because I was aware of the irony of when I was uh, not on screen, it had my husband's picture over my name. <laughs> and that just seemed somehow not, uh, not of a piece right now. So, <laughs> so I'm uh, becoming visible. You cannot erase me. <laughs> if you have to imagine something other than my face, then I hope you would imagine or remember one of my uh, pieces of art that were uh, accompanying um, Harriet's beautiful musical piece that Michael uh, curated out of the dialogue issue, the most recent exponent dialogue issue. So um, thank you so much, both of you, Rebecca, for leading. Um, the discussion and Laurel for your wisdom and uh, example and chutzpah and all the things that make me treasure you as a friend. Um, as we conclude now, we are going to have a closing musical number by, um, which was created by Erica Glenn from um, she adapted the text from a poem by Andrew Sievers, who is the conductor of the video that we'll see. The singers come from various choirs across the U.S. uniting under the banner of virtual concert produced by Muse Phoenix. And the editing was done by Dan Schwartz of Accent Concerts. Um, Erica, Dr. Erica Glenn, has a DMA in conducting. She is a current Fulbright scholar Previously, she worked at Arizona State University conducting the women's chorus, teaching beginning conducting, and serving as chorus masters for operas. She also co-founded the Arizona Women's Collaborative and Phoenix Singing. Uh, and Phoenix Singing. Uh, Glenn holds a BM and MM in music composition and an EDM in the arts and education from Harvard University. Um, she is the 2020 recipient of an American Council's grant, and we are thrilled to be able to uh, present, possibly premiere, I don't know, um, this uh, piece of music that uh, Erica uh, adapted and um, helped birth to the world. So um we'll have that and following that will be our closing prayer by amanda hendricks komoto who will offer our, our benediction amanda is an assistant professor of history at montana state university she's doing some of the most exciting work in mormon history her article mahana you naked modesty sexuality and race in the mormon in the mormon pacific when the mormon history Association's Best Article Award in 2017. And her book, Imperial Zions, Race and Family in the American West, will soon be published by the University of Nebraska Press. We are also proud to have her as a dialogue author. Her article, The Other Crime, Abortion and Contraception in 19th and 20th Century Utah, appeared in our spring 2020 issue. A friend to the Latter-day Saint community, Amanda will share a little about her faith's tradition practice of closing blessings before her prayer. So now we'll uh, listen to our musical number. Thank you so much, all of you, for being with us.
I wrote Catharsis specifically for this concert, setting the lovely text of Andrew Seavers. One of the things I miss most about live choral performance is the collective breathing experience. You'll notice a recurrent ma throughout the piece that mimics both deep meditative breathing and the gentle roll of waves on a shore. Catharsis centers on the idea that even when things appear to be stuck in interminable stasis, the turning of the tide is near, a certainty in Earth's natural cycles. You may also hear throughout the piece the influence of some of my favorite choral composers, composers like Clausen and Whitaker. And by the end of the piece, the choir's collective breath is underscored by a gently pulsing rhythm that makes way for a single voice to emerge, joined then by all the voices in one final affirmation. Enjoy catharsis.
All right, so um, as was mentioned, um, I'm going to go ahead and give a final benediction. Um, I'm actually Methodist and we don't do final prayers after uh, the final piece um, or after the sermon. And so I um, asked if I could give a benediction instead. And I was um, asked to sort of give a short explanation of what a benediction is. Um, and so within my religious tradition, the idea is, is that the church is a space of solace and of respite. Um, and then it, the benediction is meant to transition you from that space in which you are uh, focused on your faith and on your faith life and then prepare you to go out into the world and live it. Um, and so I'll end today with a benediction, um, which is basically a final blessing to send people out into the world. Um, so as we go forth, may we remember the work of our forebears as they've sought to create a more just and equitable world. May we be attentive to the pain which cannot be spoken. And as we join in this work, may God, our creator, our redeemer, and our sustainer, the mother of us all, bless our work and give us that same hunger for righteousness. Go forth and remember that you are loved. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you so much, Amanda, and thank you, Laurel. Thank you all for being with us today during this stimulating, depressing, inspiring uh, contemplation of the scriptures. Uh, we hope you'll um, attend our next gospel study in which uh, Blair Hodges will be our, our presenter, and we look forward to that and seeing you then. Thank you so much, and have a blessed Sabbath. Thank you.